1: Brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl
0: Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, Stories Behind the Story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Tom Keneally, welcome to Better Reading. Oh, well, thank you. So Tom and I have known each other for some years now, haven't we? Oh, we have, we
2: were, you were a a literary child Mm. when I was a literary middle-aged man. And then now I'm a literary geriatric and you're a literary woman in her prime.
0: Well, do you know, I was just uh, in the introduction, it says, uh, let let me read it first and then I'll tell you what I want to say about age. Tom Keneally is one of Australia's most well renowned writers. I would say... This isn't in my notes, but I would say he's an Australian legend. Since publishing his first book in 1964, he has written many works of fiction and non-fiction, including the book of prize-winning Schindler's List. So we're we calling Schindler's List now Schindler's List, not Schindler's Ark anymore. Yeah,
2: that's funny. Uh- the, the Americans insisted on calling it Schindler's yes,
0: List. I remember that, yeah. Well, anyway, when I read it, it was called Schindler's Ark, yes, It became the that- film Schindler's List uh, with Liam Neeson. He has also been awarded the Miles Franklin Award and the Los Angeles Times Prize, amongst other accolades. His latest book is called Corporal Hitler's Pistol, and it tells a fascinating story of a rural Australian town prior to the Second World War and race relations in that town. Now, 1964, when your first book was published, was the year I was born. Oh, boy. There no you wonder
2: you're a woman in her prime. <laughs> Very good go. vintages. That's when my you were so born two year. years before my elder daughter, Meg.
0: Yes, and I've spoken now with Meg. Yes. Yeah, I have. I've spoken with her as well. Hey, you remember you guys, well, pre-COVID, you and Meg came into my office.
2: Yes, indeed, yeah.
0: Mm. Okay, so tell me about Corporal Hitler's Pistol. Talk to me about where the idea came from and how the book came about.
2: Well, two ideas. One is that one day, one Friday, when everyone in Kempsey, when I was a little kid, came to town, came down to these two streets, and uh, these two shopping thoroughfares in the town of Kempsey. And when I grew up, I became aware of the fact that one day a woman must have seen her husband's features undeniably, at least as far as she was concerned, in a half-caste, thunguddy kid living, a kid that's come down from the uh, blacks' camp at um, Burnt Bridge or from the one that still exists at Green Hill outside Kempsey. And what did she do when she saw those features undeniably in A Half-Cast Child? Uh, did she deny? Did she pick up a temporary fast? Did she? This woman decides uh, after the emotional turmoil that She wants to leave her husband, but she also wants to send the half-caste kid to Newington, where her husband went to school. And neither of these propositions can be entertained in 1933. So I've always wanted to write on that. And then there was a character who lived a long time in the Maclay called Chicken I won't give you his second name because he really existed. I've called him Chicken Dalton, and he was a brilliant cinema pianist in the days of the silent movies when my father was and mother were growing up, and in the then under threat, just in time for the depression, as the soundtracks came along. He was um, a um, also called Chicken because his father was a uh, sleeper cutter, and he used to hypnotise chicken so they, they can go into the family pot. There were poor wow. people. Sleeper cutting is the most beautiful craft. I don't know if you've ever seen a bloke do it, but it is ill-paid, you know, It uh, and it's exacting. It, it is like sculpting a sleeper out of any old block of wood is quieter, and they just do it by axe and by hand with an axe and using plumb line.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Anyhow, so there we got Chicken playing away in the cinema and hypnotising his chickens for his mother. And my mother told me something before she died which made me decide I was going to write this book. And that is, she said, he used to come in to Barsby's. Uh, if you look closely at the cover of this book, you'll see a shop called Barsby's, and he used to buy cosmetics off me. But they weren't for himself because he liked to make up Aboriginal women, Aboriginal women who were going to a wedding, Aboriginal women who were going to Sydney on the on the Sydney Mail, uh, you know, uh, and th- with the. The idea of this frustrated makeup artist who hypnotized chicken played the piano in the cinema in 1933—that was just. I thought that has to be dealt with. About that time, Cheryl, uh, I live about 300 meters from a cliff, beautiful cliff called Bluefish, and it's over that cliff that sacrifices human sacrifices, basically. Mm -hmm. of gay men occurred. And uh, uh, the famous one is the young American uh, PhD student who was thrown off there. His death was decided to be uh, a, um, this was in the eighties. His death was decided a suicide. His brother who, uh, and this is worth a novel in itself, but his brother had the algorithm for digitising films. So when we put a film on our computer or send it to another computer, that's all using his uh, his brother's algorithm. And the brother had a lot of money. He came to Australia, he used private detectives, he won the uh, cops over, and uh, now a man has been arrested and charged with his brother's murder. And he has said... Many other boys were thrown off there, and it's a most beautiful spot. Uh, that one day there should be a monument. I know it's it's hard to be put a monument on a sandstone cliff because sandstone's always eroding. But um, in any case, I thought this so shocked me the story that I thought, God, you know, mm. how many more, O oh Lord, must we sacrifice? Mm. And I was raised with all the the gay hate, well, gay contempt uh, stuff that was just in our culture. If you're a young boy and you weren't gay, you just, it it was in the air. And I wanted to write about a bloke who was gay so long ago in a non-enlightened place, but a place which tolerated him as the town's favourite city, as people used to say, tolerated him until things go wrong and things go very wrong. Things go very wrong when the woman who believes her husband has had a half-caste kid goes to him to be made up by him. This is an extraordinary gesture. And then she goes home and defies her husband to deal with this in the light. Then the... um. If you lived in an um, Irish family, as I'm always saying I am, instead of a good, respectable Protestant one like you, Cheryl, you know, <laughs> families of SP bookmakers, bullshitters and, and alcoholics. Uh, if you, if we had a terrible thing happen in the 1920s after my grandparents had immigrated. It was an Irish civil war. The Irish don't like talking too much about it. But they did two things to each other in that civil war about whether to accept the Irish Free State without Ulster or whether you wanted it all, and the rebels wanted it all, Mm. and they fought a civil war for eight months. Now, the town my grandparents came from was split right into the, the county of Kerry where most of it was fought and in Cork. Uh, where were, families were divided. And um, I wanted to write about that because I met a man in Mayo who was a senior public servant. Mayo's over on the West Coast, and I was visiting a site where the famine had been worst because the infrastructure was so primitive. There's barely a, a track out of there called the Eris Peninsula. And he his ancestors came from there but he was a well-educated Irishman, and he said, John my father, who was with the rebels, fled to Australia, the whole group of them fled to Australia, and the Irish in the New South Wales Railways set up whole teams of gangers of Irish rebels until it was safe to go back to Ireland. And he said, Mm -hmm. have you ever heard of Enfield? Well, Enfield is a... Suburb of Sydney. And I have. He, it's right. He was near on me. a gang of crew in Enfield. And he said he always said the girls were were um splendid, but he waited until he got back to Ireland to get married. And I thought the country was full of these plays. And some of them exacted uh, vengeance for things that happened. And it was very common that you got an unexplained murder. Uh, Sebastian Barry also mm-hmm. writes about this. A relative of his was shot dead in vengeance for serving in the Free State Army and the Black and Tans uh, in an art gallery in Cincinnati. But it also happened in Australia. So there is this is the murder for which Corporal Hitler's pistol is used. Now, last of all, last name, Corporal Hitler... On the night, I was pointed out when I was a young man by friends of my cousins up there that there was a bloke. They were telling it with quite some awe because they believed that that there was a cranky old uh, dairy farmer who had been in the 5th Division of the Australian Army at Framel the night of 19th July. The Australian storm forward. Vast slaughter, as they do so at Vermeule. But some capture the German lines they hold. German prisoners overnight, and they the Germans come back in the morning and take the Australian prisoners. But they save, so they let some Australians go. There's dense fog. Their officers can't see what they're doing, and they've got to know these places overnight, so they let, let them go. And This is in the official war memorial. For the 53rd Battalion from Kempsey and Hof's Harbour and places like that was exactly opposite Hitler's regiment, the 16th Reserve Bavarian Regiment. So it is possible that Hitler got to know Australians that night. And it's not impossible if he was briefly held prisoner, being a runner, that Mm -hmm. an old bloke would bring, or a young bloke when he did it, would bring a a pistol home from a German. Oh, wow. What what an idea, Kempsey meeting that classic anti-Semitism. And how ironic would it be if Hitler got to know his captor overnight and let his captor go at dawn as a prelude to all the people he didn't let go. Mm. Uh, And so that's the scenario uh, of Corporal Hitler's pistol, which was later used to kill the Irish informer in the novel.
0: Yeah, extraordinary work. Oh no, not at all. And, and it all makes sense when you're reading it. I just want to go back a little bit to how you came to writing, because a lot uh, this podcast we talk about how writers came to write. Firstly, do you remember how many books you've written? Do you know? Do you keep count?
2: No, I don't. Uh, I feel that if I look back, I'll be turned into a pillar of salt.
0: Okay. All right, then. Well, it's many, many, and fiction and nonfiction. And do you remember how you came to writing? Like, what was it that drew you to writing? Like, when you were, because I know you went to St. Pat's.
2: Yes, I did. You did. And did Not you? your think- friends are ruined, Priest Cheryl. Yeah. <laughs> nice. A nice <laughs> pass for a good Protestant <laughs> or a right. good Saint. Well, <laughs> I'm,
0: I'm, um, well, I'm an atheist now, Tom, but I grew up Maronite Catholic Maronite.
2: Oh, right, yeah, yeah, yes, because so of my parents. You, remember you my were, parents? You used to go to mass with us, yes, draggers.
0: Yeah, I went to Saints Glastica, the sister school, to some oh, hats. Gee. Do you remember That's that? Quite
2: good at literature, weren't they? There's something. Yeah. There's something about. The mythology of the dogma and the mythology of literature
0: did go hand in hand, didn't they? Mm-hmm. Well, I was, and you'll remember this. I mean, when I was at school at St. Scholastica, I was living in Glebe, and my parents um, owned a corner shop, and it was really one of the poorest urban areas in Sydney. Like, we I, were there. I remember. Do you remember that? Yeah. No
2: reason to go to Glebe. No, no reason to go to the rocks. The rocks was worse than Glee.
0: That's right. It was that. And I remember my parents wanting to move out of Glee because the hippies were coming in. And also my father loathed the hippies um, and the alternate kind of living arrangements that, because on our street, there were a lot of people that were, uh, what do they call it when they're living in houses they're not paying rent for? They were squatters. Squatters, of course they were. <laughs> Thank you. So there was a lot of people in our street squatting. And that was horrific for my father, who was. Oh, yeah, working, I can imagine. He was working really hard to keep his family going. But anyway, I want to know. When you were at school, when you were at St. Pat's, did you think then that you might be a writer? What did you think you might be? Uh,
2: I definitely thought writing was the most miraculous thing I'd encountered.
0: Yeah, And particularly when I did
2: Honours English and Brother Maglade, who was a great old bloke, but really a knight of a man, he went back to the locked drawer at the back of the classroom and unlocked it for the handful of Honours English boys, and out came Graham Greene. Oh, wow. Evelyn That's... Moore.
0: Yeah. I was going to ask you what were you reading? D-
2: D.H. Lawrence, <laughs> uh, T.S. Eliot, Auden, Judith Wright.
0: Mm.
2: Uh, and I found out that it was possible to write in Australia. I, I, I really, we we have come a long way in terms of being cool about culture in Australia, so cool we don't even subsidise it in the lockdown. Uh, but um, <laughs> Terrible. the idea, uh, I, I had a definite idea that you couldn't write if you're an Australian because you had no references to any of the flowers in literature that were described but you couldn't, the vegetation described in Scott. And in Dickens, just wasn't anywhere near you. There were no seasons of mist and mellow fruitfulness. And so we didn't have the vegetation. We didn't have the seasons. The seasons were upside down, which is very interesting. It had a cosmic shock upon the Christians because Christian festivals are so tied to seasons in the, you know, Easter to planting Christmas to midsummer. Uh, and um, so um, instead of midwinter, the darkest day of the year. Uh, and so um, I felt that our job was to humiliate the Poms at cricket, behave gallantly. We had a mythology of defeat then behave gallantly, but go down fighting. I remember my father, who had been. In the Middle East, and was therefore the victor. Came home, and he found out I hadn't been having enough fights. So he mm. organised a couple of fights with boys a year older than me, and he thought he, he, this was the right thing. He was sure he was. He was a lovely man. He's a, a rascal, but a lovely man. And he said to me, "It's not winning that's important. It is going down." Having delivered a punch that they'll remember on their deathbed. So it's all this Ned Kelly, tell him I died game. It's flippily. Yeah, we get slaughtered and we're invaders, which we don't mention. We get slaughtered, but that's because of the malice of the palms, the cleverness of the enemy. We were do boys. But the style we did it in, oh my. God! (laughs) God. (laughs) And and the household heroes were Farlap, who died in America. The Americans killed him. He was too good for them. And Les Darcy, the boxer, who went to America and died in Tennessee, I think, of an infection. But the, the Yanks had done that to him because he was too good. So we were too rough and too good for the world, and our best hope was a grand gesture that everyone would remember. and uh, It's
0: still a so little it's,
2: like I that. totally changed since then. Oh, and, I don't
0: know about that. I think that there's still a little bit like that. I think that that's and, a description. Uh, anyhow, of the-
2: when I found out you could write, then I wanted to write. And actually when I studied for the priesthood, as a lot of boys from Catholic schools did, most of us left, but I, I was there for quite a time. I knew Father... Eddie Campion, who's a mate of yours, I believe, mm-hmm. and Eddie is a great human being. He became a priest. He remained a priest, a bit under his own under his own terms, as we know. And um, he and I studied for the priesthood together in uh, at the other St. Pat's, Manly, the the, the seminary in those days. So we had a big dose.
0: I want to know, so when you wrote Schindler's Ark, when you sat down, was that the first book you'd written and had published?
2: Uh, No, it was 1964. It was a novel called The Place
0: Witten. Right. How did that come about? How did you get a book published?
2: In the most primitive way, uh, because if the young writers now, Mm -hmm. published and unpublished, and God bless them all, that they are afflicted with this strange uh, ambition. There was no talk in the newspapers about publishers or very little about writers except in reviews. There are a lot of review pages, but writers weren't publicly known. Our books arrived generally from England except for there was a, domestic market but it was very small a domestic publishing setup but it was very small Uh, and of course Angus and Robertson was the giant in that proposition there were no literary festivals no there was no society of authors no all up and even ask a question like but you give me advice on my literary contract.
0: Well, that's why I was wondering, before I spoke to you today, I was wondering how did he get published? How did so you know how to do it? In the title page of every book, like yeah. in here
2: somewhere they have to give their address on the copyright
0: page. Yes, they do, yes. The publishers and give their address. So and their I details.
2: opened a book. I wanted to be published by Faber, but I didn't think I was good enough. So I opened the book, and Castle was a big, it was a great dictionary publisher, but it was also a trade publisher for fiction. Mm. So I got the address. I sent the manuscript and the address off to London, and a couple of months later, I got a telegram, uh, which actually delivered me from marginalism, from being a a ruined priest. I was school teaching, uh, got a telegram or a message to call my mother and i found out uh that castle wanted to publish now that was for 150 quid which is $300 mm-hmm.
0: 1964
2: but that didn't mean anything i mean we writers are their own worst enemies <laughs> and uh hence i got a book published now you can imagine Coming from Glebe, I came from Homebush, which made up in boredom for what Glebe supplied in squalor. (laughs) (laughs) I I, uh, just thought I must do this. I was studying law at the time. I would have made a good bullshitting lawyer, but I probably (laughs) would have annoyed judges. Um, But I thought that this is what you do. I didn't have an uncle who'd been to Oxford who'd say, well, young man, um, you can't be a writer. Seriously expect uh, to, uh, to make a fortune. And uh, I-, I just started doing it. Compounded with that, I now had the confidence to have a social life involving those mysterious creatures, women, And it's kind of funny that they were mysterious creatures. But, I mean, that was the tragedy of those times, all boys' schools. And then you go to the seminary where you're
0: supposed to become a celibate priest and women are the enemy. I want to go back. So you were published in the UK first. Uh, Yes, indeed, because I,
2: I didn't know there were Australian publishers.
0: And when were you then published in Australia? Cassell would have had his di- distribution here. That yeah.
2: Castle, yeah. uh, the angels had arranged, and kids, I don't really believe in angels, but it, yeah. some things happen that, that, that are just too gratuitous to be not <laughs> attributable to outside forces. And a young man called uh, Eddie
0: Coffey. Oh, I yes, I know the coffee had coffees. just yeah. come the
2: castle. Mm. So he started publishing me here. Castle, Melbourne.
0: So who published Schindler's Ark? Who was the the publisher of that? That
2: was much later. I published a number of books then, including The Challenge of Jimmy Batsman,
0: Which got onto the school list.
2: Yes, indeed. uh, Mm -hmm. And a lot of kids had to, poor kids had to study um, this uh, book, Castle Published, Bring Larks and Heroes, Bring Larks and Heroes, Nineteen. Sixty-six, and I got a Commonwealth scholarship for that, a fellowship, writing fellowship of $4,000.
0: To write um, Schindler's Ark.
2: To write Bring Larks and Heroes. Oh, okay, right. And that was published. My aim was always to get published in America, England, and here. Yeah. So I'd get three pittances, which would add up to a sort of trade his wage yeah to a salary and uh that's uh that's what i did bring larks and heroes was published here of course but so was my first book the place written uh, and in uh, then having uh, i then compounded the error and meeting a woman my mother was a patient of hers
0: mm-hmm. and
2: fed her my book
0: mm-hmm.
2: and sort of my mother was a patient, and the girl was a nurse, and she sort of harried the girl, as only women of that generation could mm. uh, could to read the book. And uh, Judy was impressed in it, so we started going by it, and we started to, to go out together, but we we both had you know she she had been heavily marked by the Catholic thing too. And um, ultimately we married, but that shows the power of literature, particularly then when you go to a bar and glamorous young women were just starting to go to pubs and they'd ask you what you did. And I hated to say, school teaching and studying law, oh, you're still, but you're quite old now, you know, about 24 or 25. Yeah, yeah, miss. Yeah, yeah. So, did you do anything uh, as a monk? Great pickup line.
0: Yeah, great pickup line. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Only appeals to a certain kind of girl. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely.
0: All right, we're out of time, Mr. Tom Keneally. Um, I love chatting with you. I think we should try and have a chat every year. Well, we probably, you, you put a book out every year, don't you? Yes, so we, we just about do. Yeah,
2: I, and I've got a ripper coming out. Will be out next year. Okay, so we'll check in. Uh, and it's it's about a escape convict from Tasmania who yes. became an advocate for the South, a political yep. prisoner who became an advocate. How is that possible? Lost two of these boys in the Confederate army, settled in the great Smoky mountains amongst Dolly Parton's ancestors. There are partons in the graveyard in Tukalichi Cove where he lived. And uh that's the sort of book i'm trying to write now i think the, my aim is to write books that are relevant to young readers whether they read them or not
0: Well, they will read them they'll read them when they're ready listen we've got to sign off but i want to i think we might have talked about this before but a few years back you and i and michael parkinson were together do you remember that yes. and he said to me that he felt that tom cannelly was one of the greatest writers of all time yeah so he's you do remember Is that? He got this thing. Yeah. 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 So that's uh, great praise, isn't it?
2: Yes. I, I, I just wish he wasn't such a rugby league fan. Oh. See, I know rugby <laughs> a lot about rugby league.
0: <laughs> Tom Keneally, thank you so much for your time, and we'll chat next year.
2: Thank you, Cheryl.
3: Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.